Welcome to Nothing Never Happens, a Radical Pedagogy Podcast. I'm Lucia Holsether here with co-host Tina Pippin. We are over the moon today to have for our July 2020 episode, three scholar teacher organizers, Brenda Arjona, Bristol Cave Lacoste, and Priscilla Martinez. All three of them are graduate workers at the University of California at Santa Cruz. Since December 2019, they and their UCSC colleagues have been on strike for a cost of living adjustment, or a COLA, to reduce the overwhelming rent burden on graduate teachers and to address housing, um, food, and health precarity in Santa Cruz more generally. We're going to leave it to them to tell us about the history of this fight. For now, I want to introduce each of our guests individually. So Brenda is a historical archaeologist of California, currently in her third year of graduate study in the anthropology department. Her scholarship is rooted in a decolonial method that centers Black, Indigenous, and person of color voices. She's also a non-traditional student, a graduate of a community college, and a single mom, working to reimagine and remake the limits of what academic, academia is and what its communities look like. Bristol is a historian of sexuality focused on immigration law and prostitution during the progressive era. She's currently a PhD candidate in the history department and has an affiliation with Latin American and Latino studies as well. And finally, Priscilla is a scholar of Latin American and Latin Latino studies, specializing in historical studies of the U.S.-Mexico borderlands a PhD candidate in the history department. She also is a podcaster extraordinaire. And one of those podcasts includes um, one on the voices of the COLA strike, which uh, we will provide many links to on our website in which everybody who is listening to this one should check out. So I think it goes without saying, all of our guests have been involved deeply in the UCSC COLA um, movement and the strikes. I want them to talk about this because, of course, they are the best expert on it. So we are going to turn it over now. Um, thank you so much, Priscilla, Brenda, Bristol, for being here. We are so thrilled to have you on Nothing Never Happens. Yes, thank you for being here. Um, I want to ask the first question, which um, is aimed at you scholar, teacher, organizers. Um, I mean, to be all three when you're in grad school is, uh, pretty amazing and inspiring. Um, and you're building a movement of, of that as, as an example for, for everyone um, in higher education, I think, faculty included. Um, so I want to ask if you would give us a quick recap of the history of the movement. Um, you know, explain for our listeners what a wildcat strike is and um, what the situation is in um, Santa Cruz with um, uh, rent burden and the cost of living and what got you into this movement. Graduate school is all consuming enough uh, despite you know, all the other things you have going on in your lives. Um, so what was the impetus for you to get involved in the movement and um, uh, where are you now in, this, in the movement in this pandemic? Yeah, so uh, this is Bristol, and I can give uh, kind of a longer brief outline. Um, 
Although it's interesting because I actually was not here in December. I was on fellowship. Um, and so I am not as cool of a wildcat as everybody else. Um, but basically, uh, our union, the last time that we went on strike was in 2014, uh, which was right before I came. And uh, there were some really great gains in that contract. And then by 2018, um, our union activism kind of fizzled and um, another caucus had really taken hold and they negotiated a contract that was settled very controversially. So it was a very modest contract. There were some kind of big concessions, especially for international students. And they settled the ratification in the summer, which if you can imagine sending out a strike authorization vote in the middle of summer over email, or not strike authorization, I'm sorry, contract uh, ratification. You know, nobody's opening mm -hmm. their emails. Um, so we rejected that contract by 84%, um, but because UC is all under one contract, it meant that other campuses um, made the contract pass. And so since then, people have been talking about what we can do locally to address the fact that Santa Cruz housing is like a total mess. It's one of the worst housing markets in the country. And it's not just that it's expensive, it's also <clears throat> really bad, oh sorry, really bad quality. Yeah. Mm. Like <clears throat> people live in houses with nine other people. Um, these houses are falling apart, they're moldy, they're disgusting. Um, Brenda lives in family student housing, which is also a total mess and like doesn't have internet reliably, um, even though it's on campus. So there's all these messes, right? And the university was really slow to respond and so um, people started talking about how to make like a really concerted campaign um, people ran and were elected to the graduate student association um, with the explicit like mention that they were going to fight for cost of living adjustment um, and then they also became active in union leadership and they kind of mapped out a plan for what a wildcat strike could look like long term, like what kind of escalation we could have. And they had this plan that would go through this 2019-2020 school year. And then in the fall, we were supposed to have a series of events. And uh, one of those events was canceled by the rain. And so um, we decided to have this speak out over email and do reply alls. And administrators got involved and said some very uh, infantilizing things basically about you know we're working on solutions you don't need to ask for more like we know this is a problem don't worry about it and you know people didn't want to take that anymore and so people met uh during like week 10 of the quarter uh so it's a 10-week quarter and they met and were basically like well we're about to turn in grades what would happen if we didn't hmm. and so people voted and the element of surprise and there were um i don't know like 400 people that um withheld december grades and that was out of i think like nine 900 ta ships total so um a really big i might have the numbers wrong on that but it was a really really big portion um you know didn't didn't turn in grades on time and that was kind of how it started but um, of course I did not have grades because I had gotten this TA sabbatical 
which basically was like, you've TA'd for so long and you're so burnt out, we're gonna give you one quarter off. And then it just happened to be this quarter. Uh, and so Brenda and Priscilla might wanna add because they are the ones who had grades and were in those meetings. Yeah, Brenda talking here. Um, for me, it was, I like didn't really have any um, familiarity with the union or the fact that there was, you know, there were actions being planned. Um, being a single parent has, it's been, it's made it extremely difficult for me to be integrated in grad school. So I often don't spend time on campus and I don't get to know other people because um, I have to come right back home and be with my child. But I, I got wind of this, you know, cola campaign and I'm like what's a cola you know um, and then I, I kind of just started to um, attend there was a rally in November I believe and I realized oh man I'm not alone in my struggles like there's actually other grad students here who are having a hard time you know making ends meet and paying rent and and you know they're asking for change um, so to me that was kind of like that first rally I attended I was like whoa okay there's there's hope here um, and I think that that hope is what drew me in because I was ready to quit at that point. I was ready to drop out of grad school. Um, so yeah, it's, you know, it was for me one of those things where I saw the momentum and the passion and then the fact that the members, as Bristol said, um, and the more I attended and learned about what, what the potential of this campaign could be, the more excited I got. And here we are now, so, yeah. Yeah, this is Priscilla speaking. Um, for me, I I definitely had heard COLA kind of mentioned, um, but in fall 2019, when I was teen, um, part of the realities of kind of the effects of rent burden is that you kind of move further out from the university. And so for me, I was living in um, San Jose, which is about, you know, with traffic about an hour away from Santa Cruz. And so that was my commute for four days out of the week because we don't have control over our schedules either. Um, and so I, fall 2019, I was really not on campus either. Um, so I kind of missed all of those actions. And what really got me was the speak out over email. And I'm sure we can share some of those emails with you guys. Um, but it was just this like anger and frustration and almost hopelessness on the part of our peers who were talking about, you know, my rent burden is 70, 80%. I have $2 in my bank account. I haven't eaten, you know, anything aside from like rice and ramen noodles. Um, over the past like week or so I'm waiting, you know, um, my bills are on hold, all this stuff that um, for me, it just, it was one of those things where it was like, I knew I was struggling, but I didn't know, I thought it was just my lot, <laughs> my lot in life. I don't know, I don't know how else to put it, but I just thought that, you know, there's this kind of, um, legend or like kind of myth around grad school that you're supposed to suffer and that you're supposed to it's supposed to be hard um, and you just have to kind of get through it and you'll come out the other side but um, when I started reading those emails um, and just looking at it and saying no this is actually something systemic and then you know COLA activists were like you know yeah let's change it we should change this this should change where we're, we're teaching assistants, we're lecturers, we're GSIs, 
we comprise such a large part of UCSC's infrastructure. You know, I think there was a tally of like, we teach like 40% of their classes. Um, it might be higher than that, but um, to think about how much we contribute and how little we get in return, and then the infant infantilization of the administrators of telling us like, you know, just wait it out, everyone goes through this. And it's like, no, our world is fundamentally different from when these administrators and even our advisors were in college, you know, and we're going through grad school. We don't have those fellowships of like four or five years, you know, we're lucky to get a quarter um, at this point. So that's kind of um, where I find myself. And, you know, I went to those early strike, um, kind of uh, strike uh, meetings where they were kind of talking about what it would look like. And I decided to withhold because I knew that if we didn't do it now, then it would never happen, or at least not for a couple of more generations of graduate students going through. Thank you for those that great that great overview. I I have many questions um, that we could we could like theorize what's going on here with the ways that the university is both telling you that suffering is inevitable as a graduate student, but also like I guess in my experience in grad union organizing, also telling telling us all you're really spoiled and why are you bothering us and we pay you too much already, um, and the connections you are making between graduate pay and so many other issues, which include like it's harder to organize when you have to commute an hour to campus every day, and so you could think about um, suppressed pay as an anti-union tactic because it makes people unab unable to come and build community with each other. Obviously, it's a race and gender equity issue in the academy, which pushes people who don't have a safety net out of, out of the university. So we've, I think putting all of that on the table and just like naming that these are some of the themes that you all have just brought together for us. Before we dig in totally to that, will you just tell us what happened next? after these 400 people said, yeah, no thanks, we're, um, we're withholding our grades. And how did the university respond? What happened next? You know, this happens in December, the pandemic like, like blows up a couple of months later. Take us to the next chapter. Well, um, this is Priscilla, and I, I, I started laughing because um, I've been doing these interviews too with people, and um, essentially what happened was we had authorized the strike in early December. We were going into finals. The university kind of didn't know what to do. Our professors didn't know what to do, um, and there was a lot of power in grade withholding because, um, and this might be a little dirt on UC, uh, UCSC's kind of pedagogical structure is that um, we're told as TAs that we are being taught to teach, right? That it's kind of a training. But what has happened, at least since I've been here in the last 10 years, is that um, it's really turned into just you're a TA for your labor. And so what, why we caught our professors and our kind of university by surprise is that 
the assumption that the university had of what was going on on the pedagogical level was that um, our, our faculty were supervising us and kind of were with us through each step of the way. But in most cases, our faculty told us to keep grades at the beginning of the quarter and were just like sending a spreadsheet at the end, you know? And so they had no understanding about where the students had done throughout the quarter, where they were, anything like that. And so in some ways that was kind of very powerful and had them scrambling because we had um, launched the vote before we went into finals and we're like, if you don't talk to us, we will withhold our grades. So there was a, a period where they knew that we had voted to strike, but um, we hadn't done it yet. We hadn't fully withheld our labor because we wanted them to talk to us and resolve it before it got to that point. But the university was like, no, we're not going to talk to you. We can't talk to you out of contract. Um, it's illegal for us to talk to you out of contract. Um, and so they let it happen, essentially. And even though our professors tried to scramble to like um, make, you know, the, uh, to like facilitate the finals and things like that, they couldn't really submit grades because that was the only grade they had, you know. And so um, what ended up happening was the university let it happen. Um, everything was in tatters, like Bristol said. Um, hundreds of TAs withheld across the board. There were students who, you know, had most of their classes facilitated by TAs, so they had no grades at the end, you know, multiple classes. And so it was kind of a mess. But surprisingly, um, the university didn't reach out to us or didn't talk to us until when was it Bristol late January so through winter break through the beginning of the next quarter there was silence from the administration yeah um, I I just remember the silence was so weird over December break um, because there was like communication and kind of threats like leading up to the break and then it was three weeks of just like no emails from admin um we had no idea what was going on and you know during that time we were like having meetings and like our department um that priscilla and i are in we started like communicating with each other um in ways that we hadn't before and like really taking things seriously um and so it was really an interesting thing to see how slowly they were moving and how quickly we were moving. So like when we decided to withhold grades, one of the big things was like, we didn't want students to suffer if they needed their grade for mm -hmm. financial aid or um, whatever other, you know, there were students who were doing study abroad and they needed their grades in time. And so we found ways to um like people fought really hard with the registrar's office to allow partial grade submission so that we could just submit the grades of those students and tas did a ton of work to like communicate to students like hey if you need your grade you don't have to tell me why just tell me and and i'll submit it and so we had a ton of student solidarity from undergrads who were like yes please withhold my grade i want you to get this um, and then at the same time, like trying to really be respectful of <clears throat> the people that that needed um, that piece of paper. And that was like something that the university tried really hard to undercut that we were doing that. And you see even like 
the Twitter trolls are always like, you damage people's education, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, we really explicitly did not. Like we went out of our way to make sure that students were taken care of in the ways that they needed. But a lot of students know that, you know, the grade on their transcript, like, doesn't need to roll in in that exact moment. It's not as important as like the quality of education that they're getting. And they know that like we are the people bringing the quality of education for them. You know, in, in UC you have classes of hundreds of students and the TA is the only person that learns the student's name. And so I think like there was a lot of solidarity that was going on in those early days. And then when we came back, just to like move a little bit forward, we came back um, in winter and um, you know, after a couple weeks of silence, the university started rolling out discipline, um, not to everybody that withheld grades because it became clear that they were not competent enough to figure that out administratively. And so random people, including some people who had submitted grades were like getting these really formal letters of discipline. And so we got together and we were like, we were thinking about when to go on a full strike and then when that happened um, and we really were trying to push back and saying let's meet let's talk about this and the university said we won't meet with you um, that's when we decided to go on a full labor strike and um, so that's what we did in like week five of winter quarter and at that point the the uaw met with the university which they had said they couldn't do and it wasn't bargaining, but it was an in-person meeting with all their people and, and some of our people. Um, and so it was interesting. Every time admin said, we can't talk to you, we can't do this thing, with a little bit more pressure, they suddenly could do that, that thing. Um, and so that was part of why we pushed in the way that we did, because we knew that um, they weren't just going to give this to us, that like we had to increase the pressure, increase the pressure. Um, and so that's, that was the next step. And then, and then we went out and we were on a picket line for a month and I got to see Priscilla and Brenda every day and it was great. <laughs> and yeah, I don't know if Brenda, you wanna add anything? Yeah, um, I think the, the lack of response by the university is a big, it's a big thing to not overlook um, because it was, it was very much this, uh, this kind of, game that the university was trying to to kind of play where they're like don't you do it you know don't you withhold grades you're going to harm undergraduate students um and then to see that you know when the day came and it's like all right nobody submit grades today you guys and then to have silence during winter break you know i'm over here with my family celebrating the holidays and and my parents are like has administration said anything <laughs> Um, but it does show that that what I, what I think happened is that, you know, they're so privileged and just they don't really care that they were probably like, well, we're still going to take our, you know, holiday breaks and um, put a pin in this, even though a bunch of undergrads don't have their grades. Um, so that to me was like an, a big eye opening uh, experience because it just it really showed the true colors right away. Um, and I do think that it's it's worth mentioning again that we did have from undergrad students, those of us who allegedly with I'm still under the, the conduct process here. <laughs> um, but there there was consent, you know, there was never a moment where 
uh, an undergrad would have asked for a grade and would not have been given that grade. So it was very much the um, of work undergrads and graduate students that helped to begin to build something new. And then again, seeing this kind of lack of response from the university, just uh, it made it even more clear that like, yeah, we're in this together and they're, they're the ones that are the others, you know? Um, but yeah, I think in terms of response, that was the biggest thing for me that stood out. Uh, Priscilla talking, um, I think the other, Brenda brings up some really great stuff. And I think when the university did start kind of communicating, it wasn't with us, but it was with our departments first and the faculty that we had TA'd for. And some of the stuff that they were trying to get faculty and the departments to do in order to like to explicitly not talk to us was like they asked faculty to like guess at a grade or like tentatively pass students you know if they didn't have their grade to like just create some kind of metric that they could say okay this quarter happened um but it was crazy because you know for TAs who did not have supportive faculty um some faculty went back and were trying to like resolicit grades or have students resubmit things so that they could grade it over break or those who maybe just had the final the university said we'll use the final as a metric even though it's like 30 percent and just you know for us who were had the grade we were just like well if they if the university is telling us that we need to put students first in what way is 10 percent final gonna you know put the student first for the work that they had done over the quarter so it was like a bunch of these really crazy things that um, admin was trying to get people to do so that they could not talk to us or that they wouldn't have to or have to concede in any way, um, which to me was very surprising in those moments of silence because they were silent towards us, but not towards our departments, our chairs, our faculty. Um, and that was kind of the workaround that um, they were trying to, to do until finally in late July where they were like, okay, well, let's start issuing, you know, discipline, let's start, you know, having uh, these conversations, and a lot of it was around Canvas and online submission, and again, that kind of disconnect between the pedagogical training that was happening on the ground was that most classes don't use Canvas, um, so in my disciplinary hearings, um, which allegedly I withheld grades, um, you know, one of the main accusations was that oh, you didn't submit to Canvas. And in those meetings, we were like, well, we weren't asked to submit to Canvas. Canvas was just, you know, for readings, there was no grade book on Canvas. And so that was kind of the, the chaos that I think was happening with the university to try to like figure out what actually was going on and how they could work around us, but not really knowing what, to, what they needed to work around. Well, I want to follow up uh, on that with um, a connection between teaching and protesting. Um, you talked about um, the solidarity of some of the undergraduate students. What about the faculty you worked with? Uh, what was the overall faculty response, and especially those who did, did have power with tenure and full professors? I mean, were any um, uh, faculty willing to come forward and join you and, and build coalition with you? I can, I can speak to that. <clears throat> this is Brenda. 
Um, I know for our department in anthropology, um, I did see, I, I saw some of the faculty physically show up um, to the picket line and, and more through emails and petitions um, showing their support. But one, one of the things that I noticed too is that the ones that seem to be like completely down for the cause, um, willing to kind of lay it all on the line, don't seem to be the ones of tenure, which is a bit disappointing. <laughs> Um, because it's like, well, you have more to lose, but you're, you know, putting it on the line. Um, and, and I, I think it kind of echoes the same thing that, that happened with those of us that like went on again, right? We have a lot to lose, but we're putting it on the line because we know the struggle. Um, so I, I, yeah, just thinking about how teaching and how being an activist and how all of that kind of comes together, um, it, it's definitely shown me that having the experiences I have or struggling the way that I struggle, um, it makes a difference and, and, you know, in terms of representation, but also in like how you build this community and how you get this radical education. Um, because that, that's what's helped me and taught me. And, and it's kind of been the same thing that trickles down to me and my students when I saw them at the picket line. Um, but yeah, definitely surprising that it's, it's mostly um, lectures, you know, that were like just extremely, I can't express, wow, their support like brought me to tears most days. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, and this is Bristol. Um, I can also add, uh, we had a lot of, uh, we had a lot of faculty support um, at the picket line that was really powerful. Um, I think like, yeah, the visible actions were like what we noticed and what we really needed. So there was a day where faculty got together with their regalia and they all like marched down to our picket at the same time. And it was such a moment that that became like something that happened almost every day. And it's like when you're on the picket line for eight hours a day and you're like, you know, how close is it to noon? Like noon is like when the faculty comes and that was like a big um, celebration for us. And, and there was one day where like my advisor um, came to the picket line and um, we had some great advising conversations um, but really it was great um, because she was able to see that um, the police were very aggressive mm. and um, and they acted differently when faculty were around and so we started really like um, encouraging faculty to kind of serve in these roles where they could use their privilege and so they would do like cop watch on certain days and then the day um, the third day of the picket line we had like a mass action where a lot of people were in the street and um, you know peacefully and the campus had already been closed down for a couple hours but <clears throat> the cops decided that was the day that they were gonna get really rough and arrest people and so um, having faculty there was really important because they were doing everything that they could to disrupt that. They were like, you know, getting in the way of the police with their batons and things like that. But at the same time, like, I think for faculty to see that even like the limits of their privilege, that people were still getting arrested um, was really uh, a transformative moment for the movement and for a lot of faculty. Um, it got them more involved. And then there were other faculty that, you know, were very much like, 
why, why can't you just keep this peaceful? Why can't you just take the concessions that you've gotten thus far? And like, you know, that there are other ways to do this. They were very uncomfortable with a wildcat strike with us moving without the permission of our union. Um, and it was very interesting to see kind of where people fell um, in those camps. And, um, you know, it was hard when we went out on open-ended, like <clears throat> we didn't think that it would take a month. Um, and I think that the length of our picket was really hard on some of those relationships with faculty, but at the same time, we were always trying to turn it back. And I was trying to turn it back with my students to say, hey, like, don't be mad at us. Be mm -hmm. mad at an administration that doesn't care that you have not been in your classroom in a month. Like, you know, this is not our fault that the university is so stubborn that they won't meet with us. Um, and so I think, I think students, maybe understood that better than some faculty after a while um, because you know people want to teach and they want their lessons to come and in a quarter system it's so rushed already um, that I think you know there were some yeah there were definitely some like hurt feelings and some difficult um, conversations happening but I think for some of the faculty um, this was really like a defining opportunity for them to kind of pick a side. These are the, the such good reflections and it makes me wonder, we've gotten at this point and like in, from a number of directions, but like to explicitly talk about how you all see the connection between your work as teachers and what you do in the classroom and what you do on the picket line and in the endless organizing meetings. Um, you all have made very clear, anyone who's familiar with anti-union um, tactics directed at teachers at all levels knows well the rhetoric that um, teachers who are fighting for labor rights and educational justice are throwing their students under the bus. Um, what do you, like what, I think partly what's your response to that? Um, we know how you do that sort of the rhetorical responses, like no, actually the university is the one who's um, keeping students out of class and sending the cops to arrest students who are also teachers and people who are allied with them. Um, how do you in your own life and conception of yourself as a scholar, teacher, activist connect these these projects that you're engaged in. This is Priscilla. Um, I so this is where I get to gush about your podcast. Um, when I was listening to it, I listened to the first episode um, with Ira Shore, and um, I really enjoyed that one because um, I think while I was listening, I was just kind of like snappy and like, yes, yes, this is exactly it. And one of the things that he says is he talks about um, working both, that you can't defend the classroom that you want. If you want to be a critical teacher, um, you work hard to scaffold in your classroom, but you can't defend it against, um, from within. You have to step outside of the classroom and you have to actually, um, because what administration wants to do is they want to kind of confine you into the structure. And if you want to teach radically, um, and if you want to kind of really engage students where they're at, you have to defend your right to do that. And to do that, you have to actually step outside of the classroom. Um, and I think 
as as the picket kind of um evolved and as the as we were there for a month i think that things started to fray within our departments um and our support from our peers you know talking about like okay this is enough but what we were trying to impress on them is that if you if you push it down the line and say um the university will, will do the right thing and it's like no they won't so you as an as a teacher if you want to defend your what your project is and why you're in academia if you want to really foster that next generation you have to step outside of the classroom and fight for it yourself and i think that that for me was why i maintained the picket and why i went out and what i think about when i think about my future role as a scholar is that you have to um fight for your right to be there and you have to fight for the kind of education that you want because the ways the context in which you're operating um will not allow for what you want your project to be um because it is a business model because it's immersed in those kind of capitalist structures um if you want to push against that then you have to actually fight for it Brenda here. Um, so most of my work, actually all of my work, <laughs> is meant to like be decolonial. Um, so I, everything uh, in terms of education, I, I see through that lens. Um, so I would encourage people to really challenge what education is and why we're so tied to this idea of it having to be in a classroom and having these books uh, a lot of them it's <laughs> kind of funny because I take my theory classes and it's like all these disclaimers about how these are old antiquated ideas um, by old racist white men but we're still going to teach them to you you know um, <laughs> it's just kind of a chip I'm like okay <laughs> um, and so I think like having the picket and having that time where it was kind of we were forced to to maintain this physical like don't cross this line you know um, really uh, challenged me as, as an educator to think about like, what do I really want my students to learn and, and what do I want them to take away from, from being in, in university? Um, and not to mention the fact that a lot of them, uh, you know, they see a, a Latinx uh, queer single mom who's an archeologist and it's like, there aren't a lot of us. <laughs> um, and so I did have students that would, that would come talk to me at the picket and like, some of them would disclose some really personal things um, to me about how seeing what the university was putting us grad students through reminded them about, you know, things in their families, injustices that they've faced. Um, and it really, you know, opened up those kind of doors for me to realize that there's so much more <laughs> to being an educator than just sitting down and, you know, reading from a book um, or expecting these assignments with grades. Um, the letter grades when like there's a ton more to learn and and I, I I'm very happy that I at least got to see some of my students kind of ignite that spark where they were like oh <laughs> so I can learn about all this and I can learn about being an activist and being a student and being an anthropology um, or pursuing whatever academic career I want to but I can still make a difference for people like myself or you know to pave the way for something different Priscilla here, I wanted to just add to uh, what Brenda was talking about. And I, I think um, 
this might have come up before about like protesting being a privilege and that that was kind of an a critique of um professors to us or to um from the administration to kind of like you know um stop what we were doing but i think that protesting might be a privilege for some but i think for others it's etched into our everyday interactions like brenda was talking about you know being latinx in the university setting you know just stepping foot in the ivory tower is an act of activism you have to actively advocate for yourself your position your scholarship that it matters your views on you know radical pedagogy <laughs> you know those are things that you just being there is a form of activism and so i think that um one of my favorite moments from the ticket and i might be getting ahead of our our talk was um when the picket was just starting, um, I had been set to guest lecture in um, the class that I was teaching for, and it was um, Introduction to Latinx History. And I was set to talk about um, the UAW and um, La Raza Unida movement, and that's kind of my specialty. And I, I instead of canceling my lecture, I was like, no, I want to go through with it. Um, it's important. And so as I was going through and as I lectured and I talked about, you know, the reasons people mobilized and what was at stake for them and the tactics used against them, it was very eerie and I think um, very eye-opening for my students too, who were a majority Latinx um, in that class. And they were like, oh my gosh, this is part of a larger struggle. This is part of a larger struggle in education. Oh my gosh, they're using the exact same tactics that you know, our university is using, oh my gosh, I can see this kind of pattern evolving. And it was just so great to, you know, and I, I lectured and we had, you know, an open space um, to kind of ask questions and talk later. And a lot of the students were like, oh my gosh, this is happening in my family. This is, my dad was a part of that. And now, you know, I'm the next generation. I'm the one who got to go to higher education. He fought for me to go to school and now I'm here. And now it's my right to go to grad school that, you know, higher education is a place, is a place for me. So it was very eerie. I'm like getting chills right now thinking about that moment. Um, and then, you know, after that, it was very transformative too, because, you know, I was like, I, I crossed the light. Um, I had my Wildcat t-shirt on. I was like, I'm going to go back down to the picket. Um, I'll be there all day. And my students came. And then after that, I saw my students there. And, you know, I maintained a lot of those relationships because the students were like, oh my gosh, I want to be where you are. Um, I want to go to grad school. I want to keep going. I want to get a PhD, but I know that it's a fight to, to get there. And so that's kind of when I think about, I kind of chafe when people say, you know, to protest is a privilege and it's like, well, for some, but for us, it's ingrained into who we are. It's part of our history. And it's a part of, you know, who we are as scholars. Those those aren't inseparable. We don't have the privilege of making those boxes for ourselves. Oh, you want to say? Oh, I was just gonna say that that's a really hard thing to follow. I had more to add because that was really beautiful. <laughs> uh, go ahead, Lucia. Well, I was just gonna say that I think that the the like presence is activism 
has, I really appreciate how you've reframed that. One of the things that we heard a lot in the Yale grad union was um, faculty, often white faculty, telling students of color, telling queer students, telling women, you don't need to get involved in those protests because your, your, your presence is already a protest. So therefore don't get politically activated even more than you already like are by virtue of your embodiment, which seems like a really twisted way to reify the white supremacy of the institution. Um, but I, I think that like what you're, you're saying, Priscilla, that you, protest, protesting isn't just like, I happen to be occupying that space. It's how do we fight so that those occupations and transformations are possible. And so it's, it's not just activism to be present, but it's activating to further forms of activism. So thank you for that. Yeah, and y'all are, uh, are each taking huge risk in doing this work and putting yourselves out there and building this movement. Um, I, w I guess two parts, one, um, where are the demands now? Where are you in that process? Uh, what do you see ahead of you in the for the late summer fall? And and then how can those of us who are not in California but are at Yale or at Agnes Scott College, a little um, liberal arts college in Decatur, Georgia, support you? Because we stand or fall together here. This is not just a, a left coast thing or an Ivy League thing. It's, you know, our living wage movement with our custodians. I mean, we're all connected um, to oppose this system uh, in higher ed. So could you speak to that? Uh, I'm just laughing because Priscilla wants me to always talk business. <laughs> um, uh, so yeah, um, when we, so we had been out on the picket for four weeks, and then we had another week where we were kind of a rolling picket, um, where we started to meet on different spaces on campus to like strategize for the end of winter and for what spring could look like. And then during that week is when people started talking about the virus. And then we went to shelter in place like halfway through that week. And so it was a very abrupt end after spending so much time together in person. Um, and it made things really complicated for us um, because um, we had done a lot of work with other UCs and we were gearing up for this kind of UC-wide grade withholding um, that just didn't happen because of the fear um, about what would happen in a pandemic, what would happen, you know, like the UC had already shown that they would fire a hundred of our TAs and not feel guilty about it. And so, um, so we had to kind of step back and, and reframe a little bit more. Um, but at the same time that, you know, our, like at UCSC classes were reduced and reformed to um, kind of make up for like this loss of uh, TA ships and um, the firing of TAs. Um, there was also like a lot of discipline that rolled out like uh, about a month into spring quarter. And it was very weird because at that point, like we had fought to have all the fired cats as we call them, like still get health benefits. Um, and that was something really hard fought and that 
um, people gained, but then um, the talks of reinstatement were really, really slow. Administration kept saying, oh, it's the pre UC president's fault. And the UC president was like, I don't actually care. It's your local administration that's holding back. Um, and so amidst that, they're rolling out more and more and more discipline and not just for grade withholding, but some of the like things that were happening on the picket line um, and really targeting grad students of color and saying that like you were leading this and that you were aggressive and that you frightened our administrators and, and things like that that are just so clearly racially motivated. Um, and so we have been fighting really hard against that and trying to get the charges dropped. And we know that an administrator um, like, you know, the chancellor, uh, Cindy Lareve, like could sign a piece of paper and tomorrow all of this discipline could go away. Um, but it feels really like they want us to be punished like as much as possible um, and that they're really trying to, you know, squish every possible dissent at a university that literally the slogan at UC Santa Cruz is the original authority on questioning authority. And it's just so disgusting. And, you know, I've seen so many, so many undergrads are watching this and so horrified, right, that like their tuition dollars are going to an institution that's so despicable. Um, and a lot of us, you know, I'm six years into this program, like I can't just like leave because that is a lot of years down the drain. But at the same time, it's like, what is this even gonna mean for me to carry this institution with me when they have been so um, just horrible? And so um, we are working on some arbitration that's gonna happen this summer, um, hopefully fighting for people to be reinstated. But you know, the university is not gonna do anything unless they feel like everyone is watching. And it's been very hard to get people to watch with um, everything that's been going on in the world. And so we are, um, we're, we'll have an email campaign. Um, you know, we're trying to get people to email administrators and to send personalized messages to administrators. So it's not just something that they filter out, but making sure that they know that, um, that people are really watching and that, um, you know, the University of California's reputation is really on the line here. And so, um, that's kind of our next step. And then, you know, once we win reinstatement, then the question is like, how are we gonna get a COLA? Like, that's how this all started. And, you know, not only have we not really gotten a lot of um, like financial restitution, but also it's much harder for us. You know, most people had side jobs that now have dried up. I was a high school sub and now, you know, I couldn't do that in the spring. Um, and so it's even more important than ever. And we really have been trying to um, push that. And like, so Priscilla and Brenda haven't been teaching, but I have been teaching um, both spring and summer session. And it's been really interesting because a lot of the students are like, oh, well, like you had a good run, but COLA's over, right? Like you can't push for more right now because the university is gonna cut so many things. and. I mean, I see why people think that, right? Like that's the language of austerity that the university is already rolling out. But what I say to students is uh, like my apartment has now become my classroom and my university is using my apartment rent free and they are expecting me to, you know, to show up on time, to be well-dressed, to have a clean living space. 
I know people that are running section while sitting in their bed because there's nowhere else in their apartment that they can get good enough internet to teach. And so I always say to students, like, why should we do that for, you know, the same amount of pay for an even lower quality of work for even more work? It's so much more work to be adapting things to online. Um, and so I think that, you know, COLA makes more sense than ever. And, you know, really fighting the language that people are putting out there of like, you should just be grateful that you have anything at all. Um, you know, we shouldn't be grateful that the university is paying us like one quarter of a living wage, right? They treat our jobs like all we do is like TA on the side when really like we're working full time as students as well um, and not getting compensated for that. So yeah to me that's like that's really long but that's where we're at that's where i think we need to be moving and i'm i'm not sure what it's going to look like in the fall because i think we'll, we'll likely be online again um, but i'm really hoping that you know there are like strongest leaders like they need their jobs back so that they can stay here and continue to work on their degrees because that's really why we're here right we don't come here to ta for fun we come here to get phds and that's what the university says they want to give us so um, yeah, hoping that Priscilla and Brenda get back um, on payroll real soon and get some back pay. Yeah, Priscilla here. I, I think that um, it's also good to note that I, and correct me if I'm wrong, Bristol, but the arbitration and the mediation that's happening um, starting in August is only for a small subsect of people who are fired and dismissed. It's not for everyone. There's still some of us that um, allegedly withheld past a certain deadline and um, we're kind of cut apart from those negotiations and our union um, and our, our union is, uh, you know, kind of at odds with um, what to do with um, some of us and some of us who um, took part in other direct actions too on campus and were fired or, or had additional discipline. Um, like I, and some of the discipline that they handed down was kind of insane. I know um, one of one of our peers in the history department got suspended for two years. Um, so it's kind of like, you know, no progress to degree at that point, you know, so it's just, it's very interesting. And like Bristol brought up too about you know, this idea of finances um, as well when, you know, we had our active picket, UCSC was, you know, spending $300,000 a day on police to be there. Um, and you think about the idea of the COLA um, that was, you know, after a month of picketing, I mean, that's half the COLA for campus. And instead, the UC was like, no, we're actually going to invest it in police as opposed to investing it in our grad students. Um, and even, you know, the appointment of the new UC president as well got a, what was it, $300,000 raise from the last one and like a signing bonus, you know? So it's just like a lot of these things that are like, well, you're telling us you can't do one thing or that you have no, you know, you don't know where you can account for things, but yet um, your TAs and your GSIs and your lecturers now who are running this campus um, are taking pay cuts or are being dismissed or not signed for a full year, things like that, or their class sizes are getting infinitely bigger because they can in a Zoom university, you know, 
um, it just brings a lot of those things to the fore. And like Bristol said, we're, we're still here, we're still fighting. Um, reinstatement is what we want, but we also do want to move towards Nicola as well, because um, like Bristol said, our living conditions haven't changed. And, you know, some people who were living with, you know, seven, eight roommates, or, you know, could only afford to rent, um, you know, like a 10 by five room, like that's, that's their office, that's their living space, that's, you know, where they teach from. So a lot of, I think that when people talked about the pandemic and things changing, and they were like, let it go. And it's like, no, it actually made it a lot worse, you know, and it makes it that much more important for us to keep fighting, um, even though things are so uncertain. Um, yeah. Yeah, you're really um, telling us that the pandemic has exposed the warped priorities of the university system. So what is your hope in all this? And what is the university yet to come for you that you imagine, um, both um, in terms of uh, the system and, you know, equity and inclusion, but also um, in terms of pedagogy? You know, how these protests are really exposing some of the pedagogical limitations and um, priorities that the university has had. I can, um, I can speak to that a little bit, Brenda here. Um, for me, uh, equity is a huge one, um, especially because I don't necessarily fit that mold of, of a grad student, right? Um, so even with a COLA, <laughs> um, it's, you know, this is all for the idealized like grad student, uh, which is normally not a single mother with an 11 year old son <laughs> who eats me out of house and home. Um, but it, <laughs> you know, it's, it's those kinds of things that have made me want to quit grad school. Um, it's the fact that I don't feel seen. Um, and I've met maybe one, one other single parent here on this campus. I mean, I'm sure they exist, but there isn't even really like one place where we can go um, as a resource center or anything like that, which um, when I was at Berkeley for my undergrad, there was a student parent center and that was really helpful. Um, so just, just things like that, I think. Um, and again, this is, you know, very like specific to me, but I would like to someday see more um, single parents trying to get back um, into education because it does seem impossible. Um, and then as far as like how education is, I just think like everything we're going through, not just the COLA, but like COVID, it's kind of putting like this huge <laughs> um, spotlight on what education is, right? Um, even for my, for my son, he's about to start sixth grade and he's kind of like, he's asking me, you know, mommy, like, what if I don't get good grades? I'm like, don't worry about the freaking numbers, the one, the two, the four, I don't care about that. All I care right now is that your mental health is okay because he's struggled, you know, with not seeing his friends at school and stuff, um, and that you're learning and progressing. But um, yeah, I, I don't know what the right answer, I guess, is, but I just really think that this is a time for all educators of all, you know, not just college, but everywhere to really think about um, what learning means and <laughs> the fact that there are a lot of things that we need to learn outside of the classroom um, that are gonna help us to succeed in life and when pandemics happen and stuff like that. Um, and it doesn't necessarily have to be this this one mold that we've been kind of outgrowing, it seems, for a while now. Yeah, Crystal, you're, um, I 
I echo a lot of what Brenda was talking about. And I think one of the big takeaways that I think um, this COLA campaign has brought um, for our university, but also I think the UC in general is it connected so many of us. And I think that like, you know, like Brenda, we might've seen each other at like, you know, some place, but we would have never like talked to each other or like, you know, had conversations. And I think that the way in which the university is structured is it's meant to compartmentalize people. Like you stick to your discipline, you stick to your cohorts, um, you teach a, within a certain, you know, type of classroom or whatever. And I think that for COLA, you know, like I hung out with people in STEM and the sciences, you know, I'm a history major. And I think that that picket, that experience at the picket really bonded a lot of us and really created kind of an activist network that we were all maybe plugged in in different places, but um, in coming together for this campaign, it just really solidified those networks. And like Bristol was talking about earlier, um, it also connected us with our other UC campuses where before we, like we did not know who they were, but now, you know, we, know people at UCI, UC Davis, we have a connection and a network that's happening there too. And we've maintained that throughout the COLA um, campaign. And I think that uh, that's something that's something hopeful about the future um, when we talk about potential, you know, union actions or what have you, we have the foundations for a network in place. And I think that a lot of these big systems um, could benefit from making those um, those connections or to try to make those. Um, so that that was a big takeaway for me. And like Brenda was talking about with, you know, rethinking the classroom, I think for me, um, the meaning of education, at least for my students, and I do um, a lot of kind of unofficial mentoring on the side as a Latinx um, historian and then a Latinx woman in grad school, that um, what I really emphasize to my students is the critical thinking that education isn't just knowing certain dates or things like that, but it's actually learning the skills to be able to apply to your own life and those critical thinking um, skills and to process things. And I think that through activism, you can see those in motion. Um, and, you know, in the lecture that I talked about earlier, it was like, okay, this is why we learn what we learn because you can see it in your life happening in real time. And these are the markers for why it's happening. And here's the theory behind why the state reinforces itself. It's a, there's a theory behind why police are used to quell, you know, activism and things like that. And I think that's what makes it that holistic approach. And I think um, if we think about it in those ways that they're not compartmentalized, but, um, Intrinsic, intrinsically tied that that's so inspirational for what academia could be and what those connections could be. Um, but we need to fight to get there. And I think that that reinforces why across the board in Georgia and in California, um, in New York, all these things that we're working together. Um, because another big thing from the COLA was um, in those early times, um, in December when we kind of were working towards that great strike and even after um, we had a lot of peers come from CUNY and Harvard and they came and they were like oh my gosh we tried this on our campus and here's what we did and here's how it didn't work this way but we you know we see 
um, you guys as an inspiration to restart our efforts. And I think that in some ways that also that network went outside of UCSC and outside of UC, but it was grad student programs across the country um, that were retaking up these fights in ways that they thought that they had been quashed before and seeing us kind of um, re-engage and fight a system as big as UC, they were like, you know what, I think we can do it too and we should do it. And we're experiencing the same things um, across the board. Yeah, if, if we have time, um, I'll answer a little bit. So this is Bristol and um, yeah, I think for me, um, it's so important that higher education is a space where people learn collective action and like collective power. Um, I think about like there's so many things growing up that try to individualize you. And so I think, um, you know, people sometimes come to the university like expecting this meritocracy um, and grad student or like grad school has really like, you know, kicked that belief out of me. Um, and so I have been really trying to cultivate in my students like more sense of what they deserve and that what they deserve is not based on what grade they're getting or how hard they're working or anything about their positionality, but that, you know, everybody deserves the space to come and learn. Um, and I think that that is something that COLA can really speak to. Um, and I told my students all the time when, when this was when we were nearing the, the full strike, um, I was like, this is gonna teach you what collective, collective action can do. Um, and then for them to learn the lesson that like, oh, the university actually is gonna be way more author authoritarian than anybody planned for is like also an important lesson, but kind of a negative one. <laughs> um, but I told my students all the time, like, I hope that everybody feels like whatever job they end up in, um, that they don't have to accept bad conditions as just the way it is. Um, and that, you know, it is worth fighting back. It is worth attempting to make change, even if it doesn't end up looking like the way that you want it to. Um, and so I think that is really important to me in terms of like, where we go from here, what kind of future we want to see. For me, it's a future where like, students get a say in how their educators get compensated so that it doesn't just become, you know, administrators see themselves as valued more than the rest of us um, when we are doing so much of the work. Um, so yeah, thinking about what, um, what the future like more democratic institution can look like is really exciting for me. And I have often like when I made the choice to stay in grad school, which, you know, is a, always a difficult choice for everyone to not quit when they want to quit. Um, I really was like, okay, I'm either going to see this uh, higher ed like transformed in my lifetime or I'm going to watch it like crash to the ground. And when I said that, I certainly didn't think that I was going to see a movement like COLA and it would be a part of a movement like COLA. And I certainly didn't think that I would like see this pandemic play out the way that it has. Um, and so that has really rung differently for me lately um, and thinking about what I can do to really um, build the future that I want, knowing that um, there are a lot of things working against that movement and that radical pedagogy. I just really wanna lift up um, how 
when we ask a question like what like what's the future of higher ed or what's what's the source of hope this contrast between the university deploying its police to protect white property in santa cruz and to undermine its graduate students um fighting for a different future and what is actually happening the learning the teaching the community building the healing work that's happening in the space of that picket line like i think we already see um what is possible through the work that you're doing and you know as someone on the other coast who has been watching cola unfold as a kind of a beacon um activating other people to do them to think that okay like we can take this action and there will be it's not just on the horizon like what you might win but like you might win something by showing up at the picket line today um i you know am grateful to all of you um and i know we're we're a little we're, we're running on the long side but um i i i feel selfishly glad about that um I just want to end by asking if any of you have anything else to add. I'll wrap that in with our standard closing question on the podcast, which is if anybody is reading, watching, consuming, um, listening to something that you want to shout out to our listeners, um, we will, we can swap recommendations. We'll give you that chance. And then we will, then we will bid us all on to our respective terrains of struggle. I, I can start with an easy one. I know Priscilla is going to have like a million pop culture recommendations because <laughs> that's her jam. Uh, this is Bristol. I am teaching queer history right now. And um, I am just always inspired by the fight of Polly Murray, um, who uh, was a, now is understood as like a genderqueer trans icon and a saint in the Episcopal Church and also civil rights fighter. Um, doing a lot of work in the 30s and 40s, like before we think of a civil rights movement. Um, but even though I've been reading for years about Polly, um, this year I've been listening to an audiobook of their autobiography. Um, and that has been just a really nice way to reflect. Um, you know, I know people right now are like reading a lot of new things and um, trying to, you know, listen more to Black voices in different ways. Um, but I have really been like relishing in this older voice that we have from the past. Um, and so I highly recommend that for anybody. Okay, um, this is Priscilla. Um, I, I think one thing that I, I'd like to add is, is part of the hope is that um, one of the big things for our COLA movement was just our support from our undergrads. And when we think about hope for, you know, not just graduate students organizing, but undergraduates were like on point with their activism. And it was such a beautiful coalition of, you know, black, brown, indigenous, differently abled, queer students, undocumented students that were like, we wanna fight for an education that we want. You know, this is a public university. We, we, we're the people that you need to consult for this. And I found so much hope and so much, you know, just like inspiration from our undergraduates. And they were the ones that were, you know, helping us man our picket. They were there, you know, they were the ones that got arrested too. You know, it wasn't just graduate students and like faculty, 
Um, and so I, I just find a lot of inspiration from them. And um, that just gives me a lot of hope for the future too, that maybe if it isn't in my lifetime, that I'm almost certain that it'll be the next um, generation of, of students. Um, so that was, that was one thing that uh, I, I just really wanted to, to emphasize. Um, and then I, I do love pop culture, so I could go on, on and on. Um, one thing that I have started watching was Vida on Stars, um, and that one's uh, really great about two sisters um, who kind of go back to LA um, and kind of deal with um, returning home. Um, and I've also been reading um, Thick by, um, let's see, uh, Tressie McMillan Coton, um, and that's been really great. It's like a series of essays written from a, uh, a black feminist perspective, um, and it's really great and very entertaining. Um, so I highly recommend those as well. Brenda here. Um, so in terms of hope, I just want to say, not to get too mushy, but um, this whole experience with Cola and meeting um, all of the fellow activists here on campus that I had no idea existed. <laughs> um, it really, it really brought me to life. I, since all this happened, I've also gone through some like, some of the hardest things I've ever had to go through. Um, my best friend was, was murdered a couple of months ago. So like, I guess I'm just trying to say it's, it's like, it was really life-saving for me, literally, to, to have met everyone through COLA and more importantly, to, to have made those connections for community because that's what led me to um, be connected to mutual aid groups. Like, like the only reason my son and I have survived these past few months is because I met everyone through COLA. So again, if there's ever any doubt of like what, what um, branching out from the classroom can do, that, that's one tangible example. Um, and then as far as what I'm reading, I'm kind of all over the place right now, um, but I've challenged myself to start branching out um, and reading um, like Pedagogy of the Oppressed and uh, Fanon and like other things that archaeologists will never, you know, give me the book and say, hey, you should read this. <laughs> but it's actually helped me a ton to understand um, where I'm coming from in terms of kind of what, what kind of scholar I want to be. Um, and I am trying to get through uh, post season two still, but I have to stop every couple of episodes and cry. So. Ooh, yes. Yeah, I know. We'll see if I make it through, but that's one of my favorite shows. Tina, do you have any recommendations for us? Let me unmute. Um, I have uh, been reading Mike Davis. Um, you know, the space theorist and L.A. geo philosopher, sociologist. Um, you know, I do apocalyptic literature and culture, and I have, um, uh, I'm looking for apocalyptic everywhere, and it's not hard to find in higher education. And um, I appreciated the uh, apocalyptic tone to the movement that you built, like, the, the doomsday strike, <laughs> et cetera, um, which, uh, so that's what I'm reading. I'm reading apocalyptic in an ap apocalypse. So um, double apocalypse, endless apocalypses. And I watched um, the film the other day, um, uh, Palm Springs, about, mm -hmm. you know, the infinite time loops 
you know, kind of Groundhog Day thing. Yeah, very, very clever. You, Lucia? I've been, this is like sort of a, I don't, I don't think it's a silly suggestion. I said, I've just been like rocking out to KEXP, the radio station out of Seattle for a lot of my days as I, as I do these book revisions. And there's a DJ I really like, but he's had like, his name is Gabriel Teodros. And he, um, usually his, his set, his shows have been like in the middle of the night and so I have to go back into the archives but he's getting like his a daytime slot now um and he's he's really thoughtful about the music he picks and always says that his his mission or like his his purpose as a DJ is to is that the people listening will um feel good in their bodies and that if he hasn't, if people haven't felt good and at home in their bodies while they're listening, he hasn't done his job as a DJ. And I just find that like super affirming. And um, he has a real social justice consciousness about the way that he um, he talks about everything that's going on in the world on his show. So I just, I really, I will signal, I do not know him, um, but I get life from listening to Gabriel Teodros on KEXP every day. All right, I think we are, we, we've gone over time. Thank you all for being here. Thank you for uh, your witness. Thank you for um, really being on the front lines of so many, so many teacher movements um, and showing us, showing us what is possible um, with solidarity and with risk. Um, it's, been, it's been wonderful to talk. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing all the work, good work that you're doing. Yeah, thank you for inviting us. Um, yeah, I'm so excited to listen to more of this podcast now because I feel like I found, I found my people, you know. Um, <laughs> so it was cool to get invited to this and then realize like, you know, I was like, oh, I like pedagogy. And then I was like, oh, these are people that like pedagogy like I like it. <laughs> Pedagogy podcast and the interview that Lucia Holsether and I, Tina Pippin, co-host, did with the University of California at Santa Cruz graduate students about their strike and the COLA movement. Our audio engineer is Aaliyah Harris. Our producer is China Wilson. Intro music is by Lance Eric Hagen, performed by Aviva and the Flame along with Lance Eric Hagen. Our outro music is by Paul Myrie of the Wabash Center for Teaching Theology and Religious Studies. The song today is The Long Road, which we thought was appropriate for the long road that these graduate students are taking us toward justice. Paul's music is available on Bandcamp 
www.thepowerofpositivity.com. Thank you for listening.